Hello everyone and welcome to episode 24 of EV Brief, your weekly podcast for electric vehicle and sustainable transport news from Australia and around the world. I'm your host, Jonathan McFeet, and on today's show I'll bring you an interview with Dr. Sanjay Kutten, an expert in energy, transportation and electrification based in Singapore. I'll also bring you the week's top EV and renewables news stories. Starting off, Sony surprised attendees at the recent Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, premiering its EV concept car. The Vision S is a high-tech vehicle, less about the vehicle and more about the raft of advanced tech the company wanted to showcase, from advanced audio and camera vision to in-car entertainment and assistance systems. Also at CES, the Chinese scooter company New unveiled a motorcycle concept with a removable 7kWh battery and an 80 mile range. The custom-designed motor puts out 40 horsepower to the rear wheel. Nissan also showcased a new dual-motor all-wheel drive powertrain in its Aria SUV concept at the show, which is claimed to have huge benefits in handling and ride, as well as torque flow over its current single-motor EV platform. It's expected the Aria will offer around 300 miles of range and begin production in mid to late 2021. Also at the show, Spanish charging tech company Wallbox debuted a bi-directional DC charger called Quasar, designed for domestic use. Quasar offers a 240-volt, 7.4-kilowatt charger to the car, but it also includes an inverter allowing EV drivers to use their cars as a backup to their home, similar to a Tesla Powerwall battery. The Quasar is expected to cost around $4,000 US and will go on sale this year. Moving to Tesla, and the stock smashed past $500 a share today as Wall Street analysts upgraded their assessments of the company and also their price targets. Tesla stock closed up $46.71 or 9.77% at the time of going to air at $524.86 per share. This gives Tesla a market capitalization of $94.6 billion, putting it ahead of Daimler at $58 billion, GM at $50 billion and Fiat Chrysler at $22 billion. Meanwhile, Israeli business magazine Globes reports that Tesla will open a store in Tel Aviv this year and will also open an R&D center in Israel that will focus on local vehicle tech startups. Israel has always been known as a centre for advanced technology and world-leading R&D, and it is expected that the Israeli operation will eventually work with Tesla's R&D centre in California on new vehicle technology. With a target in Israel of 25% of sales to be electrified by 2025, there's a market for around 60 to 70,000 EVs a year by that date. Jumping over to the US and the White House, working with the Department of Transportation, has established federal principles and guidelines for the development and integration of vehicle autonomy, with a focus on safety and security, innovation and consistent regulations. The initiative is designed to create an environment of innovation for stakeholders in the autonomous tech industry, while providing guidelines to the industry and addressing existing barriers to potential safety benefits and progress. Australia's newest solar project has begun injecting power to the grid in Queensland, as it commences its commissioning program this year. The 100-megawatt Yaron Lee solar farm is owned by Risen Energy and will also be looking to add battery storage to the farm in the future. Also in Australia, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation launches its first green home loan scheme, with eligible borrowers able to access interest rates from as low as 2.44%. Ethical lender Bank Australia is the first lender to be a part of the scheme and will offer a 0.4 percentage point discount on its rates. Currently, borrowers who meet a minimum 7-star energy rating will be eligible for the loan, and Bank Australia also plans to eventually extend the benefits to uh, customers looking to add green home improvements such as solar panels, uh, batteries and energy-efficient cooling systems. 
and in battery technology, researchers at Monash University have been working on a lithium sulfur battery, which promises much greater range and efficiency than current battery technology. Though it is very early days in the research, sulfur promises to be an important component of future battery tech, massively reducing costs over current nickel-manganese cobalt cathodes due to its availability worldwide. We'll now move on to my interview with Dr. Sanjay Kutten, recorded on the 27th of December. I was lucky that he could make time to catch up with me on my recent trip. Dr. Kutten currently heads the Singapore Maritime Institute. He is on the Council of the Sustainable Energy Association of Singapore and has extensive experience in chemistry, energy, oil and gas industries. Dr. Kutten, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Can you tell me a little bit about your role in sustainable energy and the EV sector in Singapore? Yeah, so officially my role is uh, I'm a user. I have my own plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. Uh, I'm a bit of an advocate, but I'm one of the many uh, advocates for electric vehicles in Singapore. I happen to be on the council of the Sustainable Energy Association, and there I chair the Sustainable Infrastructure Committee. In that space, electric vehicle is part of the topics that we discuss as a community and, you know, uh, and we've put up thought pieces in terms of what we think Singapore can do better. Uh, we wrote a white paper many years ago on levelling the playing field for electric cars in Singapore uh, and had a number of recommendations to the government to consider and I think some have been taken on board as well. So our role is really to help the government think through some of the issues both from an end-user perspective and also from an industry supporter. So we have people from the car industry, people from the charging infrastructure industry, uh, part of the committee, and you know, so we think our voice can lend some kind of practical ideas to what the government can consider. No, noting that car, the car policy in Singapore is very sensitive, it's, uh, whilst we have the car light policy, and that's achieved through the COE, the Certificate of Entitlement, so you limit the growth, right? So we're now at zero growth. So it's a replacement strategy, so we, we're not going to get any more car growth. But what we are saying is within that car population, can we have electric, can electric vehicles be part of the electrification uh, process? So we're not saying we want more cars, we just want more environmentally friendly cars. You know? And on vehicles, I suppose, Singapore has an electronic road pricing congestion charge system. Are there any concessions for hybrid or electric vehicles at this stage? There's only one. Uh, it's called the Vehicle Emission Scheme, and it does favour um, uh, zero tailpipe emissions. So a full electric vehicle will get a maximum rebate of $20,000. Now, one can argue is that sufficient enough to, to distinguish between the benefits that come with electric vehicle versus the debits that come with uh, uh, ICE, uh, ICE, internal combustion uh, engine. Uh, but there is that scheme that exists today. Uh, I think this challenge for Singapore is this. It's um, car is a luxury in Singapore. So the government cannot be over-subsidizing cars because you're actually subsidizing the rich to have more toys to play with sure. and there are a lot more bread and butter issues but i think uh, if we take the environment and now we've declared that climate change is an existential issue for a country like singapore let alone the rest of the world 
then we need to further differentiate between the debits of uh, uh, hydrocarbon or um, emission-emitting tailpipe versus electric vehicle. And on that point regarding emissions and prioritising different modes of transport, is Singapore looking at electrifying its bus fleet at all? Yeah, they have. In fact, there was a tender last year for 60 hybrid buses and 50 electric buses. And the, um, the electric buses have been tested now in the universities with different uh, charging infrastructure, pentagraph, uh, pulse charging. So there's a little bit of research going down, as for example, the NTU, to look at even the, having a hybrid supercapacitor and battery system where the supercapacitor does the initial inertia um, power system and then you know then the battery takes over. It's a lot of work and then the, the recent tender also helps which means there there's an issue about replacement right you just can't uh, depreciate the entire fleet at one go because they're brand new but I think that if you are if you have a strategy in replacing the older older vehicles as they come up for replacement with electric uh, electric systems or hybrid systems, then you'll see a gradual change out of the entire fleet at some point. So a number of Australian cities are trialling or looking at trialling electric buses, but we don't tend to do modal shift very well, that is getting people from one mode of transport to another, hence why Australians still love their cars. To be honest, the best way to move people from point A to point B is public transport. Yes. Right, it is the lowest carbon footprint per person per mile. Physical footprint. Exactly. Like exactly. So it's trying to do first the modal shift and provide the infrastructure for modal shift. So what you see in Singapore happening, there are more trains coming, uh, train lines coming up, and the the walkways between the homes and the train stations are now and more, more and more being covered, because now they recognise that you know when it rains. People cannot walk in the rain and get to work. You know, it's just unex. It's you know, it's unimaginable that people will go to work all soaking wet. So unless we start doing something about covering that, and that's what's happening now, you'll see a lot of covered walkways. Trying to make that work, it will really diminish the needs for cars. And now with zero growth on the COEs, you know, um, you know, so you're limiting the the amount of emissions that are going to come out from vehicles just by these policies. So what about the source of Singapore's electricity? I mean, the thing is we're burning natural gas. So our source of electricity is not the cleanest either. It is the cleanest hydrocarbon, but it's not zero, you know, like if it's solar. Uh, but I guess when you are so uh, uh, handicapped when it comes to renewables, every little bit counts, right? So, so that's what's happening. I mean, there's, there's things to think about whether we should even use biodiesel Right to kind of back off some of the hydrocarbons used in the transport sector. Has hydrogen been looked at at all in Singapore? Hydrogen is always... Yeah. When I, I remember in 2000, about 10, 11 years ago, EMA commissioned a study, Energy Market Authority, they commissioned a study on the hydrogen economy, and you know, that back then it was so far away still, right? This year, they just commissioned a second study, uh, or a, a study on hydrogen economy, and they're looking at infrastructure. This was done by uh, Energy Market Authority and the National Climate Change Secretariat under the Prime Minister's office. So they're looking at what are the options for hydrogen. Uh, the, the main thing to consider is infrastructure. Hi liquid hydrogen is at minus 267. It's even colder than liquid nitrogen, natural gas. 
So the infrastructure itself, the cryogenics are going to be so expensive. So the delivery systems and you know needs to be thought through the pressures, you know because I don't know many people remember, but in the 80s BP actually had a hydrogen test bed down at Ports near Portsdown Road, uh, and, uh, and they ran it for a few months, if not for a year. They had a they had a hydrogen station. You know, and, and it didn't work out because the economics didn't work, the, the technical requirements were very stringent. But it's, it is being looked at. I, mean. I think regarding transportation, there's a lot of people who are uh, staunchly either hydrogen supporters or battery electric vehicle supporters. Uh, I tend to think there's a market for both. Um, I think there are many benefits in direct-to-consumer energy that avoids the refining, storage and transportation process and that the right sort of hydrogen has the potential for large-scale commercial applications. Yeah, but we've got to be careful because there's brown hydrogen and green hydrogen. Eh? So there's no point making brown hydrogen. You know, it, it defeats the whole purpose of decarbonisation, right? And to make green hydrogen, countries like Australia make sense because you've got hydro systems, you've got huge solar tracks. For Singapore, you cannot... There's no space to make green hydrogen, yeah. you know? Uh, so we'll have to import green hydrogen. Uh, green hydrogen can be imported as ammonia, liquid ammonia, right, which carries 1.7 times more hydrogen. But then, you know, you'll have, uh, you've got to create the demand side, and I think that's what we're looking at as a nation, because it has to be a coordinated approach across all the government agencies. But let's, let's see what the study comes up with. It's been, it'll be, I think they have about a year to complete the study, and then, then the government will kind of deliberate and see how best to... But decarbonisation is on the agenda, the government's agenda. It's just how to do it properly. Because Singapore's always had a decarbonisation blueprint. They've always. I mean, if you, if you go back 10 years, there was always the Singapore sustainability blueprint, right? The question is, uh, which technology is ready to be deployed at scale that moves the needle? Right, um, there are a lot of one-off technologies, but they cannot be scaled up in any reasonable form. You know, can you tell me a bit about the Singaporean government's targets when it comes to renewables? So that's what we need to really kind of look like look at. They want to t try and hit two thousand gigawatt peak, which is quite significant. But it gets us even then on an annual basis will probably get us about short of 5% maybe. On the, because you know why? Even though Singapore is a low population, we're highly industrialised. So uh, households only account for 12% of energy needs. All the rest is commercial and industrial. You know what I mean? And, and so these are guzzlers when it comes. That's why the carbon tanks, you know, whilst one can debate is it really high enough to shift behaviours, but the door's open now, and it won't be closed. So the question is, it could be $10 in years to come, and it could go up, right? Yeah, well, in Australia, we can't even agree that we need a price on yeah, carbon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you're also on the Council of the Sustainable Energy Association. Uh, can you tell me about their role in developing renewables in Asia? The association re represents about, I think now, membership is about 180, maybe. Uh, members who are, in one way and another involved in the sustainability space and even Shell's a member because of their Shell New Ventures uh, initiative. Uh, so the, the whole idea is to help SMEs, startups, we have a huge startup community in the seas as well, um, kind of get their products and services out in the market. 
if you can test it and demonstrate in Singapore, it becomes a, a real good CV for the product and services for the Southeast Asian region. Even having said that, the, the association does have links with other associations in the Southeast Asian region and works very closely with the Asian Development Board, uh, sits on the Committee for Energy for All. Uh, and these are platforms where we try to help our companies uh, get out into the marketplace. There's mission trips together with uh, uh, Enterprise Singapore. There's reverse missions. Um, SEAS also organizes the uh, Asian Clean Energy Summit uh, during the Singapore International Energy Week. So trying to create as many platforms as possible where it could benefit the members and Singapore companies. And also through advocacy and writing thought pieces, we hope to also be a voice for uh, of the industry to the government to consider policies that could favor uh, the growth uh, of these companies you know that's really interesting because i think uh, because in australia we've got a number of great startups um, but there's minimal investment from the government uh, but i think uh, you need a body like that to promote the economic benefits of moving our cities to greener technologies uh, and construction as and well and i think you know you know buildings are kind of the central theme in a lot of cities, right? right? And the Building Construction Authority has really pushed the envelope on creating the Green Mark uh, certification system, which is akin to the LEED, uh, US LEED certification system. And then within that, um, they have point system where they benefit, where you know green technology, sustainable technologies would add to the uh, sustainability of the building. But what's more important is they set a very aggressive target by 2030. I think 80% of all buildings will be green marked. Wow. Every new building that comes out in Singapore has to be green marked minimum. So that is really forcing the design and they keep raising the, the benchmark, you know, for as technologies come in. Uh, and also now, what they, what they didn't do too well in the beginning was the follow-up after you got your green mark. But now BCA has kind of said, okay, you know, it has a recertification process because uh, this discourages people from getting the green mark and then letting it uh, disappear. But now there's a sustainable pressure to maintain that green mark status and improve. And there's incentives from there. You get GFA incentives, which is um, it goes into the millions of dollars. Yeah, but the split incentive issue is always there between the management of the building and the builder. But I mean, these are the things that need to be addressed. But there's a lot of government initiatives from that perspective to push those boundaries. But again, there's certainty in Singapore, isn't there? I think developers are happy to work within the constraints if they know what uh, the long-term or even medium-term um, regulatory and legislative frameworks are for construction. But in Australia, we've had issues with governments making commitments um, despite there being support amongst uh, consumers and users for greener buildings. I think the government, because of the close relationship it has with the industry, understand the industry mindset. Industry needs certainty. What they don't like is a waffling over a policy and then they cannot make a business decision should we invest or not. But once you say this is, this is how the policy looks like, industry and management of industry knows how to navigate that. They find a way to respond. They to will it. respond to it accordingly, yeah. right? But when, when there's no certainty in policy, that's when it's very difficult for industry to make a decision on which way to go. So in terms of the Green Mark certification, what are we talking? We're talking obviously greening the buildings. 
for maximum energy efficiency. Now they have an ultra-low energy efficient standard for buildings, you know. So per square foot area, you know, you've got to be really low. And what about water storage and recycling policy framework? Because Singapore has a distinct lack of uh, uh, water storage options. The challenge for Singapore on rainwater recycling... Okay, so the water recycling has a completely different policy framework. We have the four taps, right? And all water is that falls on the ground in Singapore goes into underground channels that actually gets recaptured and recycled. Okay. So it doesn't have to be at the building level. Because the building level, the rooftop space now is being either reserved for solar and water tanks, right? But the whole water recycling process, it comes under the PUB. And the PUB has a very different infrastructure requirement around that, and they're already uh, capturing uh, water runoff everywhere uh, to be rechanneled for uh, recycling already. Yeah, yeah. So even, even you don't space, see it, but yeah. it's all over the place. Yeah. So if you go to the PUB website, you'll see all the water recycling initiatives that are going on. But that's at the national level, so it's not really handled at the building level sure. or things like that. Sure. Yeah. But I think there's some design considerations, but other than that, so back to, uh, I guess, energy and, and renewables. Is there any room in Singapore in the future for home battery storage, do you think? And looking at microgrids. Okay, so 80% of Singaporeans live in HDB flats. It's a vertical city. The, there are microgrids of sorts. Um, the question is, the cost of battery at the moment that doesn't justify uh, anyone putting up a microgrid within the community. Um, do microgrids exist? Yes, I think if you have a big enough space, I think possibly the port areas could do it. You know what I mean? The, the question is, what do you want to do with the microgrid? Yeah, I guess Singapore doesn't need energy security at a local level, does it? Because the grid is so resilient. It's the most resilient grid in the world, right? And we, if we, we operate on just short of a 7 gigawatt peak and we have 13.5 gigawatt install capacity. Wow. So we're almost double capacity versus what we actually need at peak. Right, so uh, well, that's also good for EVs because it demonstrates this capacity. If we can't do it here, I don't know where else we can do it. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then again, the issue for EVs is with eighty percent in high rise, there's no driving driving uh, driveways, right? Like you have in Australia, you can you can put your own charging station. I mean, I drive a plug-in hybrid. I don't have a driveway, so I have to do opportunistic charging. You know, when I go to the shopping mall or whatever it is, right? Uh, I'm just so lucky the Shell station outside my house has now installed a charging station. So when I get it back from work, I leave it there for a couple of hours, walk home, have my dinner and walk back and pick up the car. Right? That's great. That's great. Yeah. But it's still two hours still on two a plug-in hybrid. Yeah. Right? In Australia, we're getting the ultra-rapid charges slowly now. So a number of battery electric vehicles can charge from 100 to up to about 200 kilowatts. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the, the problem with that is we don't have a standard for that in Singapore. Uh, and uh, the Teslas that are in Singapore at the moment are coming in through a parallel importer, mm. uh, but they use a Type 2. Yeah. Uh, they, they are using a Type 2. But I think if Tesla sh uh, wants to come to Singapore, then they just uh, need to uh, get the standards put in so that they can run the 150 kilowatt. Uh, and it, uh, the problem really is siting. Yeah. Um, the land in Singapore, it's, it's all controlled use. 
So for car park owners to give up car parks, which are revenue generating, just for electric vehicles when the it's penetration tough. is low, is very, is very tough. You know, you have you have to have enlightened uh, uh, asset owners assets, and things, yeah. yeah, to give up car park space. You know, there are a couple of problems, right? The, when buildings are built in the car parks, the electrical systems there are only designed for lighting. So it's not not even just you. It's a huge cost of change for existing buildings, right? To have higher higher capacity electrical systems. So that's why we advocated for one all new buildings to be future ready. That means you already put in place, yeah, you might pay 5% more, but it's way better than paying 50% more when you have to do uh, retrofit. Has the government decided on a policy around uh, new buildings and EV charging or not yet? I think they tried to push it through the BCA's Green Mark Scheme, you know, to encourage the new building owners to get points, incentive points from the Green Mark Scheme to be ready for EVs and have EV charging systems, right, in place. So that's your incentive, so to say, you know, that's happening. But the unlike handicap lots, EV is not a handicap lot. No, of course. You know, so so there's no moral obligation from that perspective, right? So to kind of legislate that is then becomes uh, if you're going to legislate something like that, then you've got to be very careful because it's commercial decisions, and you can't be subsidizing operation costs no. because it's a never-ending story, right? So you need to kind of, people need to find their own way to either do it for the right reasons that they really want. If they, you know, I always find it very funny. We talk about climate change being an existential issue, and yet we put a price on our existentialism. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, it actually means life or death, but you know, well, we're not willing to pay anything more than 30 cents per kilowatt hour if it's uh, death, you know what I mean? Which, yeah. which is a bit, to me, uh, a very strange mindset because it just tells me that people don't actually believe in climate change. Now, Dr. Kutten, you're also the executive director of the Singapore Maritime Institute. Um, Singapore is regarded as a leader in uh, maritime services and port services around the world. So can you talk about any advances in technology around ports in Singapore? So uh, we're going through a whole transformation process now. Uh, we just released this year uh, a maritime R&D roadmap for innovation to 2030. Um, and automation is front and center of that transformation. We've already, PSA port has already been testing automated guided vehicles for the last three years. And I think there was a recent tender on the whole charging infrastructure for AGVs. So the new POS megaport will be fully automated and uh, as much as possible electrified uh, and decarbonized to the point where, you know, it's practical. So automation, electrification, these are all front and center in all our future development plans. Testing's already happened, designs, uh, procurement has already started, and you'll see a lot more uh, decarbonizing uh, uh, efforts along the port operations to make the ports greener and safer and more reliable. Because it comes down to efficiencies as well, doesn't it? I mean, they're going to be able to move a lot more cargo and containers through the port with automation. Yes, yes. And, you know, we're building a 65 million TEU port. At the moment, we did 36 million. So the new port is going to be almost double. And that's the tourist. Uh, that's the tourist port, yeah. You know, and that will be the world's largest port, wow. right, transshipment port. Uh, unless China, of course, 
quickly build one for us. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so automation has to be part of the equation. Uh, electrification has to be part of the equation. Uh, so, so in that sense, everything has been planned with that in mind, you know, from right from the onset, you know what I mean? Uh, how we design the port, how the uh, autonomous guided vehicles will move. The cranes are all remotely op operated on Pasir Panjang already. You know what I mean? So, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's really part. It's, it's future-proofing, isn't it? It's going to last for another... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're not going to get workers. Yeah. You know, the new port itself, I heard, if we didn't automate uh, the AGVs, for example, we will need 8,000 new drivers. Where are you going to find 8,000 new drivers? You know, and with everyone so sensitive about foreign Im um, immigration and all that kind of stuff, you know, Singaporeans don't want to drive. Mm. So, so the future is automation, really. Yeah, it is yeah, very, very much automation. We're even having a pilot. We, had, we announced three pilots for autonomous tugs. So in two years' time, so the project is all the projects have started. So maybe in two, three years' time, we will see autonomous tugs. Are they diesel or electric hybrid? No, they, I think, would be hybrid and hybrids at the moment, either LNG electric hybrids or mm. diesel hybrid. The reason being is there is no small enough battery system that can take the spike in the loads required for tugging. It's quite different. They say the different use cases for hovercrafts is, is very important to design the right type of electrification. Pa just moving passengers up and down is very different from tugging. Sure. You know? So so the different design considerations and the layouts, you know, are very important from even from a safety and stability standpoint. The, the smaller the vessel, the more more likely it is to capsize in in you know uh, in choppy water situations. So the balancing of all the equipment in the boat is very critical in the design. So yeah, so we I think we are we are definitely looking at all the all the different levers you need to pull in decarbonizing the the port of the future uh, and getting ready for it. You know, even even though like Singapore has been a, it's the largest bunkering port in the world, right? It's, it moves like fifty million tons of uh, fuel, but the future is going to we're not going to be a single fuel port. We're going to have to be a multi fuel port, right? You're going to have to have LNG. There are going to be people who want hydrogen. There's going to be ship owners who are going to be on diesel, biodiesel. There's going to be ship owners still on low, low sulfur fuel oil, you know. So you're going to be a multi-fuel port, you know, even, and that might add up to 50 million tons, you know what I mean? Yeah. But then the, all the delivery systems are all different. Of course, yeah, many challenges. Yeah, you know, one infrastructure is not going to be able to do all of them, right? So how much provision do you put in in terms of space and infrastructure, you know, to be able to cater to that kind of varied demand of the future? Then these are the challenges that no one has a ready answer to, but, you know. The reality is that oil and gas are going to be around for quite a while, you know, as we do move to decarbonise economies. Yeah. You see, we, what we forget about oil and gas, and, you know, we have, the, I think, the second largest or third world's largest refinery cluster. Um, is that even the materials that you know the foams, the plastics, and you know, they all come from oil and gas. It's not just fuel, right? So you know, plastics are very part. You know, all these um, new materials are very much part of the uh, equation. You know, uh, a lot of the chemicals for pharmaceuticals and things, 
all come from uh, refineries in one form or another, you know. So, so they're going to be around. The question is, yeah, you know, they may not be moving too much diesel fuel anymore or gasoline in the future, but you know, they're still going to be around. So. Dr. Kutten, thanks so much for your time today and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And that's it for episode 24 of EV Brief. I hope you enjoyed the variety of content on today's show, as well as the interview with Dr. Kutten. EV Brief is available on your favourite podcasting network. And from now on, EV Brief is also available on YouTube, so make sure you head on over there and throw me a thumbs up if you like the videos. My name is Jonathan McFeet. Thanks so much for listening to EV Brief, and we'll see you next episode.